Well, welcome. Uh, again, it's good to have you with us. We're back in the, the daytime version of the Sunday night service, as I think it'll still be light out um, when, when we're done with this. So there's a the positive side to being a little sleepy, uh, maybe more so than normal on a Sunday night uh, tonight. We are uh, going through the life of Samson. It's four chapters in the book of Judges. This is our, our third week, um, as we'll be looking tonight at Judges chapter 15, looking at this fascinating character and such an intriguing story uh, that has so much truth and is so relevant to our lives uh, that we find ourselves in today. Well, in 1978, uh, a new TV show came out um, called The, the Incredible Hulk. In 1978, um, and it featured uh, the the Incredible Hulk back then. As you can see, pre-computer animation looked a little different. It was a big uh, big weightlifter guy, um, and the show centered around a guy as you may know if you're familiar with the Hulk at all, a guy named Dr. Bruce Banner, um, who was a genius scientist and was working in his lab to study what gave people superhuman strength in kind of moments of great danger. Um, and it was all motivated from the fact that, that they were in a car wreck where his wife died and he couldn't save her. It was his driving motivation to figure out what it is. And so he did all this, this research into it and he, he thought he had done it to some radiation or gamma radiation. I'm not a big sci-fi Marvel thing, so I don't know. Some radiation. And so he injected, he exposed himself to what he was hoping was a little bit of it, but he accidentally did an exponentially large amount of this radiation was on him. And he tried to summon great superhuman strength and there was nothing. And he was upset and he leaves his laboratory late at night and he's driving home. And of course he gets a flat tire and because it's a TV show, it's thunderstorming every time you get a flat tire, right? No one's ever gotten a flat tire on a 75 degree sunny day. It's thunderstorming, so he pulls off, he gets the equipment out, and he goes to take the bolts off, and he slips, and he pounds his hand, and he cuts his hand, and he's filled with anger, frustration, then suddenly his eyes start dilating and changing color, and he starts getting big, and his shirt starts ripping from the back, and he turns into the incredible Hulk. And he's so overcome with emotion, it shows him smashing his car and flipping it off the side of the road. And then eventually he wakes up the next morning and has no recollection of anything that he's done. And him and his partner go and begin to study what exactly has happened to him. And they begin to understand um, that he changes into a different person. He becomes the Incredible Hulk when he experiences extreme negative emotion, most commonly anger and high stress. And then when he experiences the, these high-powered emotions of anger and stress, he literally turns into someone he's not, and he cannot control himself. He's overcome, and he doesn't live like how he normally would. He's so overcome with these emotions. And I think so often, some of us live life like the Hulk. Now, we don't Hulk smash our car when we get a flat tire. We don't have that ability. But so often, when extreme negative emotions, emotions such as anger and stress and anxiety come into our lives, we find ourselves acting like an entirely different person. And so many of us, where scripture calls a believer to, to be driven and live life fulfilled by the spirit, we find ourselves driven by our emotions and making rash decisions and pursuing things that we never thought we would. Well, if there's a character that you would think of that would compared to the Incredible Hulk, it's probably Samson. 
And just like um, the Incredible Hulk, Samson had a lot of dangerous emotions that led him astray from God. And as we look tonight at Judges chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you um, to open there. Your text is also found in the handout that you hopefully received tonight. Um, as we look tonight at Judges 15, we're going to see three dangerous emotions that can lead us away from God. Three dangerous emotions that can lead us away from God. And we left off the story last week at the end of Judges chapter 14. We'll summarize for you. Um, there, there was Samson was going to be married to a Philistine woman, and he gave a riddle to his 30 companions, bodyguards, who had been given to guard the city from him. Um, they couldn't figure it out. They, they bribed his wife. They convinced her to give them the, the answer to it. They come in right at the end. They say, Samson, we got the answer to your riddle. And he's really angry. He storms off. He kills 30 guys in a town to grab 30 pairs of clothing, brings it back. And then in his rage, it says um, at the end of verse 19 of chapter 14, in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So he didn't stay. He goes back six miles away um, to his father's house. And we left last week with verse 20, this cliffhanger. If he's, he's already in hot anger, verse 20, Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. And Samson's angry and he doesn't even know that the girl he thinks is his wife is his best man's wife now. Verse 1, chapter 15. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. Apparently Walgreens was all out of flowers and chocolate, so a goat will have to do. Uh, it's a, ro a romantic gesture, kind of an I'm sorry, I acted angry, let, things are fine now, honey. Here we go. So he walks the, the six miles down with a goat, and he said, I will go in to my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. Verse 2, and her father said, I, I really thought that you utterly hated her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So he shows up and dad's like, uh, nope, 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 you can't, can't go in. Nope, she's not yours. Um, she's someone else. And then the, the dad is like, well, actually, uh, the, the, the response of dad and, and, the Samson, and Samson to this shows us two things. First, it shows us the wickedness of the Philistines. Right? It's supposed to help us understand that the Philistines really are ungodly, wicked people. Like, oh, you were going to marry this one? Hey, she's more beautiful anyways. My younger daughter, have her. Right? It shows us the wicked of the Philistines, but it also shows us that if we know anything about Samson, we know this. No one tells Samson how to find a wife. Samson alone determines who he's going to marry. No one tells Samson how to do much of anything, in fact, including God. He doesn't listen to anyone but himself. And so even if the younger sister was just as, even if she was more beautiful, Samson wants nothing to do with her. He wants nothing to do with her. And he warns them in verse 3, I'm going to be innocent when I do you harm. Verse 4. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails and when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain, as well as the olive orchards. 
So Samson is burning with anger. Samson's life motto probably would have been something like, I don't just get mad, I get even. As he continues to cycle back and say, oh, you're going to come at me? I'm going to come right back at you and do my own thing. And you read this, and there's 300 foxes, and you go, how did he do that? Well, I studied it. I have no idea. <laughs> All right, this, this is one of these mysteries of the Bible that we just have to assume that Samson either had divine intervention or somehow superhuman ability to be able to do this. This is not a normal thing. Um, the word that, that translations translate foxes is also the same word in other places in the Bible that is translated jackals, which travel more in large packs. But either way, if you're catching 300 jackals, that's still not a normal thing that you or I can do um, on a weekend. What commentators do say when, when they look at, at these 300 foxes, they say, we don't know how Samson did it, but we also don't know how long it took Samson. There's nothing to say that he went out in 20 minutes and caught 300 foxes. Um, we don't know if he had help doing it, but the point is that it shows his utter anger and hatred and rage, which is motivating his actions. Because he doesn't just go catch two, he catches 300. It's an absurd anger motivating him to go over the top in his reaction back. Well, it seemed insignificant in verse 1 when we read it, but now Samson's actions show it significant that the Philistines find themselves when this event occurs at the time of the wheat harvest. In verse 1, it says that. So Samson takes these foxes, ties them by their tails so they're paired up with each other, lights a torch, ties that to the tails, and lets them loose. Right? You can just Im imagine a picture of them zigzag running, pulling each other all throughout all of the lands. Dozens of miles, I'm sure, are just getting shredded to torrents as fire is going up everywhere as these animals, they don't just run and hide if something's pulling at your tail. They keep pulling and pushing each other all over the land. See, Samson in this action hits the Philistines where it matters most. He hits their wallet. They were farmers. This is the wheat harvest. And with this action, Samson decimates their fields. And verse 5 says the stacked grain the standing grains, and all of the olive orchards. Samson has ruined their economy by literally burning it to the ground. Well, the Philistines are angry. Verse 6, the Philistines said, who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. The Philistines have to have revenge. They have to do something. Verse 6, so the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Now, there's irony in this. If you were at chapter 14 or were with us last week, when, when the riddle was given to Samson, the threat the Philistines gave to Samson's wife, if they wouldn't give it to her, to them, excuse me, in verse 15 of chapter 14, they said, entice your husband, Samson, to tell us the riddle, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. About 20 verses later, her, her and her father's house is burned with fire. So they need a scapegoat. They got to punish someone, right? Because the economy has been wiped out. There's got to be a fall guy. Someone's got to go down for it. So it's, so it's the father and, and his family. They think that maybe it's done, but verse 7. And Samson said to them, if this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you and after that, again, once I have the last word, after that, I will quit. Verse 8 says, He struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock 
of Etam. That, that hip and thigh is, is a Hebrew idiom. Um, NIV translates it that he struck them with a vicious blow and then left. We don't have details. We don't know what it is, but it's something vicious. It's something that will leave a mark, a lasting memory. Samson, they kill what he wanted to be his wife and her father, and so he strikes back again with a vicious blow before walking away. See, the first dangerous emotion that clearly is running through Samson's life that can lead through our lives, which leads us away from God, this first dangerous emotion, you probably guessed it, is anger. The first dangerous emotion left unchecked in our lives will lead us away from God is anger. See, anger for for many people, many of us, is our default negative emotion in life. The default negative emotion. So say you've walked through your house, it's dark, and someone dared to move the furniture in your house just a little bit, and you're walking through what used to be a clear hallway, and there's a chair there, and you stub your toe. The natural human reaction is not to be like, oh, Lord bless your chair, who moved that? The natural reaction is to turn around and kick the chair right back. I haven't done that this week. (laughs) Right? That something happens to you, and you need to do something right back. If someone cuts you off, what do you do? Oh, that horn, it was made for Chicago traffic. You, you let them know, oh, you don't do that to me and get away with it. I'm going to make a loud sound and that's going to punish you really harshly. Your boss tells you unexpectedly, you got to stay late tonight. I don't care if you made plans. What's your response? You ask your, your spouse or your, your child to do something and you come home from a long day and they haven't done it. What's your initial response? Your roommate's being inconsiderate, not listening to you. What's your Default initial response. For so many of us, our response is anger. See, Samson's immaturity is on full display here in this passage. We see he's just driven by his feelings, making quick decisions, getting back at people over and over again. In Samson's life, he's a picture of where Israel finds themselves before God. And we've looked at this each week if you've been been walking through um, this story with us. And we see that that like Samson, Israel, we first saw the the first week that he was miraculously born and that he was called to be separate and devoted to God. Last week, we saw that he chased after foreign women, just like Israel chased after foreign gods. And ultimately, Samson did what was right in his own eyes, just as the Israelites did. Tonight we see that a reflection of of Israel's spiritual status with their relationship with God is just like Samson, Israel was rash and immature. We see all throughout the book of Judges that that they quickly make decisions that God brings them and a few years later, like, oh, we're going to go serve this God. We're going to serve this God. We're going to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They're continually walking away, falling away from God. And Samson's life is a reflection of the spiritual status of how low Israel has fallen and that they're just acting immature and rash in their decision-making before God. So anger drives Samson's life. And anger can drive a lot of our lives. But what you say, what about, what about righteous anger? Right? We like to think of Jesus um, in the temple overturning uh, the, the, um, the tables and being a righteous anger. Well, number one, you're not Jesus, and neither am I. Righteous anger in the Bible is a reaction to true evil, and it never goes against the other fruit of the Spirit. So righteous anger is still filled with love and peace and self-control and patience. An anger that causes you to break any of those is not a righteous anger. See, in Scripture, anger is consistently seen as a sin, as something the believer is to avoid, is to remove from our lives. 
Paul regularly warns us of this in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And sometimes we look at that and say, well, be angry and don't sin. See, there's a difference. But, but if Paul tells you, hey, this thing is so dangerous that if you don't take care of it soon, it's going to let the devil get a stronghold in your life. It's not something to be messed around with. In fact, four, verse later, four verses later, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. In Colossians 3, he says, But now you just must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. James agrees with Paul when James further elaborates on anger. And he says this in James chapter 1. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. See, when it comes to anger in our lives, the truth is no one causes us to be angry, right? No one causes us to be angry. Our anger is a symptom of our own fallen hearts and our own walk with God that clearly still needs to come more in unison to his spirit in our lives. Because there's other people who have gone through the exact same circumstances that you and I have had that didn't respond in anger. Anger is a response. It's a reflection of our sinful hearts. It's not just something that has to happen. No one can make you get angry. It's your decision. But maybe you're sitting here tonight, you're being like, well, yeah, these are for people who have emotional responses like the Hulk, who rip their shirts, who throw stuff, who scream really loud. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't do that. I don't, I don't, exp- I don't shout. I don't scream. Um, lots of times anger is expressed in other ways. It doesn't just mean loud outbursts. There's some close relatives of anger. Resentment is a close relative of anger. Bitterness is a close relative of anger. A desire for revenge and payback is close to anger. And so anger does not just mean loud, uncontrollable outbursts, but it's an attitude in our hearts. And one of the reasons that anger in our lives is so dangerous and leading us away from God is that anger in our hearts that stays there often turns in not just to anger towards people, but it causes us to be angry towards God. That suddenly the bitterness in our hearts towards other people has welled up so much that the bitterness overwhelms that our anger is not just expressed at people, but starts to actually be expressed to the creator of the universe. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that you have to be fake with God and that you can't bring your real and raw emotions to him. But when you're angry with another person, what you're saying is that you, you have caused me wrong. You've done something that is wrong towards me. And when we're angry towards God, what we're saying is, God, you have wronged me. My friends, it's not okay to be angry with God. It's okay to bring our anger to God and to leave it there. It's okay to bring our anger to God and to confess it for what it is. It's the sin of bitterness. It's the sin of not trusting in his goodness. And as life tends sometimes for for us to overwhelm us, beware in our hearts of bitterness towards God. Beware in your heart of holding on to so much anger that that you want to shake your fist at God. 
If you're angry towards God tonight, he still loves you. But it's not an attitude that's pleasing towards him. It's not something that will lead you in the path that God would have for your life. The story continues as Samson leaves, goes back into Israelite territory. Verse 9. The Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. Now, over all of these, these, this whole life of Samson, but especially chapters 14 and 15, um, we read it last week in chapter 14, verse 4, where we're told that all of this happened because the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. God is up to something. God sees the Israelites not fighting back, not calling out for redemption, not calling out to be saved from the Philistines, so he's going to do something. He's seeking an opportunity. God wanted a crisis, and now the Israelites have it. Because suddenly the Philistines are invading. The Philistines are coming in. They're sending a raid into their property. And they say in verse 10, The men of Judah came and said to them, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson, to do to him as he did to us. So 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock to Edom. 3,000 men go down to see Samson. And, and if you're like me, you're reading this, you're thinking, hopefully they're like, all right, Samson, we've seen what you've done. We've seen that no single person, no army can stop you. Samson, let's go. Samson, we're with you. The Philistines have invaded. We, we're, done with, we're done putting up with this. Samson, let's go. The 3,000 of us, you leading us, let's go get them. They come to Samson, verse 11, the 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock to Edom, said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. Verse 12, they said to him, we have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. It's heartbreaking to see the attitude of God's people not caring. They come down to their judge, God's deliverer, and rather than join him, they bind him to take him back. So Samson says to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. The second dangerous emotion that can lead us away from God that we see reflected here actually in the life of Israel, not in Samson, the second dangerous emotion is that of apathy. The second dangerous emotion is that of apathy. The people of Israel simply don't care. They want the status quo. Life is fine for them how it is. They don't want God to do anything. They don't want to be inconvenienced. They just want things to stay the same. Don't change anything, Samson. What are you doing? Stop it. See, it's tragic that Israel has fallen so far that the man God delivers to them to save them, they bind. And the enemy God comes to judge them, they want to participate with. That's how far they've fallen into spiritual apathy. See, what leads 
to apathy? What, what led the people of Israel to this point that then they would make such a shocking decision that instead of joining Samson, they would bind him and hand him over? So I was reading through the book of Judges this week. I, th- I think there's a couple reasons to help us understand things that lead to spiritual apathy that were true for Israel, but also are true for us. The first is this, what leads to apathy? I think spiritual laziness leads towards spiritual apathy. Spiritual laziness in our lives leads towards spiritual apathy. The people of God, the Israelites, did not honor God. They did not follow God. They slowly walked away from God. And as they stopped honoring God, doing what God required of them, suddenly they just stopped caring about God. Something led them to that point. It was they forsook all the things that God had called them to do to worship him, that they walked away to the point where they didn't even care anymore. See, spiritual laziness leads us to spiritual apathy. But the difficulty is for us living today, why it's so hard sometimes to identify spiritual laziness is this, that the busier you are in life, the easier it is to fall into spiritual laziness. The busier your family life is, your work life is, your social relationships are, the more pressure you have on you, stress, the easier all those things are, the busier your life is, the easier it is at times to fall into spiritual laziness. See, there's times where spiritual disciplines of prayer, of reading God's word, of coming to church, of confessing our sin, there's times where spiritual disciplines actually take discipline. That's why they're called disciplines. But so often we practice spiritual disciplines when they're not actually hard, when it's just easy, when it's easy for us to do. Sometimes it's hard to wake up and to want to read God's word. Um, I'm reading through my Bible this year. I listen to it each morning on my drive. I've hit the point now where I get to listen to Leviticus every day. All of God's word is inspired and it's all good and we can gain life and knowledge from all of it. It's just a little bit harder when you're listening to Leviticus on your morning drive. Right? You're not excited to listen to, maybe some people are, right? But I don't find myself with such excitement to listen to Leviticus as I did when I was reading through Genesis and Exodus. It's just, it's just not quite the same. Sometimes in, in life, it seems to get so discouraged, so down, you're like, I don't even want to pray. I, don't, I, I, I can't even, I, I can't muster the energy to pray. The great English preacher Charles Spurgeon said that when I feel disinclined to pray, that's the time I need to pray more than ever. And he realized in his own life that when he didn't feel like doing it is when his heart needed it the most. And he needed to fight against spiritual laziness in his life. See, he he compared people not praying because they don't feel like it is like a sick person not taking medicine because they're too tired to get up and get it. He said it might be hard to do, but you've got to do it. You, you've got to pray until, uh, this expression that Spurgeon used, you've got to pray till you pray. When you don't feel like praying, start praying and keep praying till you finally actually do pray. You've got to practice spiritual disciplines. When we fall into spiritual laziness in our lives, it leads us to a place of spiritual apathy. But it's not just spiritual laziness. What we see from the Israelites and we see so true in our lives, and I know I see in my life, is that comfort leads us to apathy. The second thing that leads us to apathy is comfort in our lives. See, it's when we're comfortable with our sin that we stop confessing. We stop trying to care. 
When, when we're, we're so comfortable in our world today, which is why so many of us struggle in our prayer life. Because we live in a very comfortable world filled with air conditioning and heating and cars and electricity and all the modern technologies of the world that we suffer very little comparison to the most of humanity. But under times of pain and difficulty, you find yourself praying more. But comfort is often leading us towards apathy because we're just, we're fine with how life is. That's where the Israelites found themselves. I think that the greatest way that we see comfort leading to apathy in our world today is how little we tell the lost people around us about Jesus. We're so comfortable in our lives that we don't care about the eternal destiny of the people around us. At least that's how our actions so often do it. That we're comfortable in our houses that we wouldn't want to go make it awkward with a person living next door to try and tell them about Jesus. We're comfortable. Life's fine how it is. I got everything that I need. And the comfort that we surround ourselves with often leads us in towards apathy, towards the things that God would have for us. See, maybe tonight you need to make a daring prayer and say, God, make me uncomfortable for your glory. God, the things in my life that are leading me towards apathy in you, would you upset those patterns? Would you show me what I need to do? So Samson is bound by his own people, led out to the Philistines coming to get him. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. This is like a, a charge, a battle rush into battle. There's Samson. He's bound with two fresh ropes. They scream and they go running in to get him. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. The picture is like Samson goes like this, dink, and they fall off. He doesn't struggle. Right, two fresh ropes, Samson's, the Spirit of the Lord comes on and boom, Samson's hands are free as the Philistines are now bearing down upon him. Verse 15, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it and with it he struck 1,000 men. Struck doesn't mean that he hit him, it means he killed him. He struck a thousand men. Notice though, as we pointed out throughout Samson's life, that he picks up a fresh jawbone and make sure it's not just a jawbone, it's a different word in there. It's a fresh one. Because Samson is a Nazarite, meaning that he can't eat or drink wine or grapes. He can't cut his hair and he can't touch anything that's unclean, meaning any recently dead animals. It's a fresh jawbone. Samson breaks his Nazarite vow picks it up, but with it, kills a thousand men. Now, here's the thing. This isn't the first time Samson's had an inter interaction with the Philistines. So I doubt the Philistines were like, hey, send a thousand guys who are lazy and have nothing else to do to go catch Samson, right? You're going to send your best guys. You're going to send guys who know what's up, guys who have been in battle before. They send those guys to get Samson and he slaughters a thousand of them. Verse 16, Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. For as soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi. He sings a song, not about God. Who does he sing a song about? Himself. Because he's Samson and he does things his way. 
Um, th- this translation that says heaps upon heaps is a little, what they think the expression probably meant something heap and donkey sounded a lot alike in Hebrew. And so it was probably translated or his expression was something like with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. I've made fools of them for coming at me and heaped them upon the ground. It's interesting as archaeologists have studied this area um, around Samson. Lots of times in Israel, it's a very hilly and mountainous country. But where this battle occurred, it's flat. And they think that Ramath Lehi, the hill of, um, excuse me, it says that the hill of the jawbone, what it literally means, it wasn't some big hill on top of which Samson fought, but the hill refers to a thousand bodies stacked upon each other. It'd be a big hill that Samson has left singing his own praises. Verse 18, and he was very thirsty. I would think so, killing a thousand people, no experience, but I would guess that's tiring, right? And he called upon the Lord and said, you have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called en It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. He cries out, notice in his prayer um, how selfish it is. God, have you done all this through your servant just so that I would die? God, do something for me, would you? As if God has never done anything for Samson in his life. And miraculously, God actually says, okay, okay, I'm going to, you're thirsty, here you go. And he provides for them. We see in Samson's response to his victory, as we've seen in Samson's life over and over and over again, the third dangerous emotion that can lead us away from God is that of arrogance. The third dangerous emotion that can lead us away from God is arrogant. His song is not a song of praise to God. It contrasts with, in Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah, in which she praises God for his deliverance and victory. Samson sings a song praising himself. How great is Samson, right? Like that, that's, his, that's his song. He's singing, look, look how great I am. His prayer is all about me. God, what are you going to do for me? His prayer is as selfish and as prideful as his own life is, which is often true of our prayers, that they reflect not our love for God, but our love for ourselves, You've undoubtedly seen the last several weeks um, lots of media coverage on the passing of Billy Graham. And one of the, the things that's really stuck out to me as I've read and watched lots of the things that people have written and said about him um, is what, what people remember about him. And not just Christians, but what, what the world is looking at and remembering him for. And, and I found um, an ABC News article that came out, the, I think it was the day after his funeral, about a week and a half ago. Um, and this is ABC News. This isn't a Christian, um, a Christian organization. They say this, Billy Graham remembered for, for what? For, for his preaching, for his legacy, for talking to tens of millions of people, for interacting with every president for like the last 50 years. What is Billy Graham remembered for? That's what Billy Graham remembered for humility at home, and on crusades. See, it was clear from all the people who knew him and interacted with him 
That as he lived his life proclaiming other people's need for grace from God into their life and that they would repent of their sins, that he never lost sight of the fact that he needed God's grace just as much as the people that he was talking to. It's clear that he never lost sight of his need to repent of his sin and his need of grace in his life. See, Samson takes God's grace, all the things that God's given him, Samson uses it for himself. Samson almost at times reminds me of your stereotypical wealthy, spoiled kid, right? Who has a lot from mom and dad. And so they go out and everyone else is being careful, but they're like, oh, no, I'm going to waste this. I'm going to do that. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want because I got mom and dad back home. They'll take care of me, right? If you ever had a friend like this, it drove you nuts. You're like, are you kidding me? Unless they spend it on you. Then you're like, oh, okay, this is cool. Right, but we see, we see they're just spoiled, taking advantage of their parents. And that's often how Samson feels towards God, that he's so spoiled and he's just using God for himself to make himself look good. Yet in our lives, that's often how we treat God's grace. That God's grace is here so that we can do what we want to do and we can always lean back so we can ask God for forgiveness because we know he says he'll forgive us always. See, God's grace in our lives was not to spoil us, it's to humble us. God didn't give us grace to spoil us so we could just presume upon it, live how we wanted, and go back to him whenever we need it. God gave us the grace in our lives that he gives us in order to humble us. And Samson lived a life of arrogance and pride, and it led him away from God. So the reality is if God's grace doesn't humble us, we haven't understood God's grace. If God's grace hasn't humbled us, so we see ourselves as small and God is great, we haven't really understood what it is. See, when our lives are driven to bring us glory, it leads to pride. But when our lives are driven to bring God glory, it leads to humility. So Samson was driven by all these emotions. What drives your life? What emotions seem to take control of you that lead you away from God? Is it anger? Is it pride? Is it so many other things that we can struggle with that, that when it comes in our lives, it drives us and it takes us over and rather than walking according with the spirit, we're living according to the emotions of our lives. Do you live your life like Samson did to bring you glory? Or do you live your life to bring God glory? Because when we understand God's grace, that our lives are about bringing him glory, we can't be prideful. But we'll see our sin. We'll see his grace. And it's what leads us to humility. God, we thank you for that grace. God, we pray that you would work out the pride that is in each and every one of our hearts. God, that we would see the beauty of Christ and his love and his sacrifice and his forgiveness for us. And we would see ourselves daily in light of that. God, I pray that for those of us here tonight who are spiritually stuck in apathy, who need to be disciplined, who need to be shaken out of some of our comforts, that you would do that tonight. God, we thank you that in you there is always grace, there's always love, there's always forgiveness. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.